to another episode of Speaking Duck. You're listening to Never Sleeps Network on NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Today I'm joined by Montreal-born Scott Vivian, who now calls Toronto home after opening the successful Beast restaurant right here in Hogtown. 96 Tecumseh, tucked away in King West. I want to welcome a very special guest, the chef of my favorite restaurant here in Toronto. And not just because he opened down the street from me when I first moved downtown, please welcome Toronto's prince of nose to tail and co-founder of the group of seven chefs, Scott Vivian. Wow, thank you. Is that uh, (laughs) very flattering? Elaborate intro, but again, I'm going to try to fanboy as little as possible (laughs) during this interview. Thank you so much for coming, Scott. Thank you. It's good to be here. What's going on with Beast these days? You just celebrated Thanksgiving. It's the Halloween season coming up. You have a pop up October 31st with Richie uh, Nakano. 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 Tell us about what's leading you into the October and the fall season. Uh, it's a great time of year and it's amazing the weather that we're having right now. Oh, so yeah. reaching the, the middle of October, we still have, uh, many patio days and nights. So it's kind of exciting. Uh, probably not good for the planet, but for, for us that are enjoying the weather, it's, it's been really good. Uh, it's been a great year, seven years into it now, our busiest year that we've ever had. Wow. At least. Um, and each year continues to grow in the restaurant as the surrounding areas grow and, uh, more potential clientele. So we look forward to the challenge of of making people happy in this area and really embracing the neighborhood which we love and live in as well and welcoming them into our home. Has the neighborhood of King West or Queen West or kind of in between changed drastically over the last seven years? I think so. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, if you look at 2010, um, there was a lot of holes in the ground, for lack of better words. A lot of new condos coming up, new businesses coming in, an area... 10 years ago, which people never really would have traveled much further west of Bathurst, has now become its own sustaining neighborhood with local businesses thriving and uh, really just places for everybody to go to. So you don't have to necessarily go all the way downtown if you want to eat good food or get good pastries or shop at good local stores. It's interesting because from a downtown Toronto perspective, going west of Bathurst is essentially leaving the central downtown core. And it only takes kind of, you know, really exciting dining destinations or, you know, restaurants and bars in general for people to kind of make their way further down west, especially if you don't live in the West, sure. you know, you, you see now even people from, you know, up North coming all the way downtown for a dining experience that's exclusive to a location. And that's what I think Beast is. I think Beast is really a call for diners, not even just based on location, but who are looking for that nose to tail experience that doesn't really exist, you know, other than a really kind of upscale take on it with, you know, examples like Black Hoof, like you have almost created this this extremely casual fine dining experience. Have you? How yeah. have you heard it explained to you when someone says, "Hey, Scott, this is what your restaurant is"? <laughs> the feedback that we've gotten has been totally on par with the, what we kind of sought out to be, which was a local neighborhood restaurant that people could come to. Something that we would like to have in our neighborhood as well that you can come two or three times a week or, you know, five times a month, whatever your dining patterns are somewhere where you could go that you could feel special and kick back and relax. Like you were having dinner 
in your own dining room. So you were born in Montreal. Correct. What led you to Toronto? A long path of moving around. Uh, I grew up actually in the States. I uh, lived in the U.S. for most of my life. Really? What and parts? And L.A., uh, Atlanta. Wow. Did a little two-year cooking stint in Colorado in my late teens. And then uh, end up in Portland, Oregon for about two and a half years. Uh, and that's really when I started getting serious about cooking and really, you know, everything kind of clicked. I realized that this is what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Portland was a great kind of downtown 101 living experience, being that I lived in the suburbs and worked in the suburbs for most of my life. It was the first opportunity that I had to live in a downtown area that was extremely accessible, uh, really good public transportation, um, but a small city, you know, maybe the size of Hamilton or something like that. So it gave me the confidence uh, to realize that I enjoyed living in that urban downtown setting. My mom's whole side of the family all live in Toronto. Oh, really? They moved from Montreal in the 80s and set up shop in Mississauga, but my cousin lives downtown. And so when I was trying to decide, the restaurant I was working at in Portland shut its doors uh, kind of abruptly, and I was left with the decision of what next? two and a half years in Portland. It was a good run. You know, it was a great learning experience, but a little bit of a small city for me. So I was kind of yearning for that larger kind of downtown living experience. I uh, checked out Chicago for a couple weeks and then got a call from my cousin and said, my roommate just moved out. Would you be interested in awesome. coming to Toronto? Very cool. I'd been to Toronto, downtown Toronto sure. over the years a few times, but didn't really know it very well. Um, but when I came here, I immediately felt not only a connection, but saw the possibilities for growth in the in the restaurant industry this being now almost 12 years ago when you first kind of settled in toronto you were working closely with jamie kennedy correct that's the royalty here in toronto <laughs> you know in the food industry you know what was your experience working with wine bar so closely with jamie kennedy you know when i first moved here i kind of used at that time, it was still uh, James Chato writing for Toronto Life. He had just come out with his top 20 restaurants in Toronto list. And I kind of sent my resume to all of them just to see what was out there, getting uh, a good feel and experience of uh, doing some working interviews in kitchens around the city. As soon as I stepped into the wine bar and met Jamie for the first time, and Toby Nemeth, who was... Uh, Edulis. Edulis, who was at that time the chef de cuisine of the wine bar. Uh, I, really, I felt a connection with them, the philosophies that they had built the Jamie Kennedy wine bar and Jamie Kennedy's whole organization on lined up perfectly with the ones as a, at that point I was 28, 29. So, you know, I had, I had a f about 10 years of cooking experience under my belt. I was really looking to set up uh, somewhere that I could call home for a longer period of time. So I was, I was pretty particular about where I wanted to work and uh, just the attitude, the demeanor, the, the respect from the top down coming from Jamie and, and spreading throughout the organization was really something that that uh, spoke to me. Yeah, it sounds like you've you took a lot from that experience, and that's all I ever hear with someone like Jamie Kennedy. You learn so much. Anything that you apply to your restaurant now that you were applying at the wine bar? Or even just any Jamie Kennedy's practices? Yeah, I mean, Jamie and Toby were great mentors. Um, they taught me a lot, uh, not only about cooking, but how to... How to uh, 
hold yourself or, or have your employees perceive you as as a leader, as a manager. Um, everything that they did was based on on respect. There was nothing that they would ever ask you to do that they wouldn't do themselves. So those were lessons that I learned that that were easily implemental for me when I moved over to 96 Tecumseh Street and opened up Beast, uh, as well as suppliers and the same philosophy of of supporting as many local producers as we possibly could. Now, did Edulis open around the same time as Beast? Edulis was, I believe, two years after. After? So, when, when we opened up Beast, Toby and her husband, Michael, had actually left Toronto to go cook abroad, and then two years later moved back to Toronto and took over the old Niagara Street Cafe space. Now, that's amazing because you guys are, you've worked together, you and Toby. Yep. And now you're opening a restaurant, maybe a five-minute walk from each other. Yeah. Completely different experiences, but you still have the same kind of, you know, foraging experience, you're, everything's local seasonal it's it's different in the sense that you know yours is definitely a little bit more casual especially your hours you do brunch you know edulis is far from a brunch restaurant at times but what's it like having friends just like open down the street from you so friends who have been your mentors it's great it's um i mean i think it's really what has built the dynamics of such a special food scene in Toronto. It's the camaraderie between chefs. We've all either worked together or collaborated together. We support each other. And and I think we all realized quite a while ago as we worked for the pioneer chefs of Toronto who kind of paved the way for us, that the way that Toronto was really going to get some notoriety as a as a legit food scene besides, you know, when people looked at Canada, it was Montreal or Vancouver. You never really heard anything about Toronto. And we realize that coming together as one and really uh, showcasing what Toronto had to offer was the best plan of attack to do that. And fortunately, successfully, it worked. We started to get notoriety and then you started to get the Daniel Baloods and David Chang's moving in, and which was met with a little bit of animosity from some. And some of us that realized that if that's what it took to put us on the map as a major food city, then so be it. Uh, we welcome them with open arms. And as long as we stay on track with what the goal is, and, and that is to, to showcase the, the beauty that Toronto has. I think Toronto patrons know the difference between going to Mama Fuku for a David Chang experience and then going to, you know, uh, Michael Caballo and Toby Nemeth experience at Edulis. I think Toronto diners are very educated. Would you agree? Absolutely. Well-traveled, well-educated. They know what they want. They're open for new experiences. And especially with restaurateurs like Grant Van Gameren and stuff like that, who are still keeping that very local feel to things. They're the, the education of the diners because in all honesty, the Toronto dining scene and the Toronto diners have grown up with us. And so now it's really special because we've all kind of, you know, settled in now and we're all on the same page, which is a really good feeling. It's great for us knowing that we can do fun stuff and it's going to be well received as long as it's done properly. And then you have this, like you, like you touched on this educated dining scene that go to New York and they go to Chicago and they go to Paris and they go to London they come back and they, I, I believe they enjoy those experiences that they have, but then they can come back and in their own backyard, they can get that same experience as well. And we're educated in the sense that uh, menus like edulesses and like beasts can have, like you said, worldly ingredients, uh, things that we're not afraid to eat, whereas somebody who, you know, 
hasn't experienced Korean food. You know, I go to your restaurant and I enjoy crispy pig ears or I enjoy anything you do with kimchi. You know, it's just Toronto is so more accustomed to trying new things or of having have tried things before and, and not afraid to order them at your restaurant, which I think says a lot about who we are and the fact that you can put out a menu being like, I know I'm going to sell beef cheek or you know what I, I recently went to a restaurant and had uh head cheese tacos oh. some of the best tacos i've ever had in a taco city you know toronto's obsessed with their tacos you know where in anywhere else in the toronto area are you getting a head cheese taco and being <laughs> the best taco i've had in probably the longest time well we feel like that's our responsibility we don't just serve the kind of off cuts of meat for shock value. We do it because we believe it's delicious. Um, we take on the responsibility of allowing our patrons to have that education process. And at the end of the day, if you're going to try something that you might not necessarily eat anywhere else or get anywhere else, we want to make sure it's delicious and even touch on a little bit of that kind of nostalgic element to it so that it's, you know, you're getting familiar flavors, but at the end of the day, it's got to taste good. And that's our philosophy with everything, whether it comes to showcasing local ingredients or using offcuts. And with a lot of educated diners comes the that kind of saying, well, why would I go to a restaurant if I can cook it at home? You know, there's so much that's on true. your menu that I would never even get close to, let alone your simple, you know, smoked trout dishes, you know, stuff that I just don't have great access to or I'm not going to be buying a huge smoked trout anytime soon. It's just you make all this food really accessible and I and I think that's one of your best skills. Now I want to talk more about your Montreal origins. Not so much about you know you you were born and raised there, but you know the nose to tail dining experience in Canada varies from province to province. I grew up, you know, watching through the Quebec lens of the wild chef, yeah. Martin Picard. The best. The best, right? It doesn't yeah. get any better than that. And when Beast arrived in Toronto, even though Toronto had experienced nose to tail before, uh, that rustic yet formidable approach that Beast brings is similar to what I see when I was watching Martin Picard. Or when I think of going to Montreal and I want to go to the Candy Shack or Pied de Cochon, you know, I, I think you're doing things similarly in your own way, of course. And again, a lot more casual. I don't, I don't want to give the impression that that, it, that your food isn't fine because it is, but you present it so comfortably. Like you can go and make it a fine dining experience, but you can also just go after work and hit up your happy hour menu. And it's, it's such a different experience altogether. It's what you want to make of it. Where did you first... First, appreciate and learn to prepare nose to tail dining. I think it was a combination. It was that integral part of my cooking career when I was working at uh, a now defunct restaurant, Gotham Building Tavern in Portland, and then moved here and started working at the Jamie Kennedy Wine Bar. That's really my first experience is working in ingredient-driven restaurants where I got to see a lot of stuff that I normally wouldn't uh, have the opportunity to cook with. And then the influences, obviously, of chefs like Martin Picard, Dave and Fred from Joe Beef, Chris Cosentino from from San Francisco. Uh, those guys were huge influences on me. And even going further back to as a young cook, reading my first uh, Fergus Henderson cookbook, it just really spoke to me. And when we opened up Beast, it was kind of like, I already knew what my cooking style was going to be. But then also 
offering that experience for this neighborhood in a restaurant where you could try things that you wouldn't normally try. And we approach the same thing with our brunch menu as we do with the dinner menu. And it's, it's, it's giving people the all around experience um, when they walk in the door. My favorite menu is Beast 120. <laughs> I, 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 I'll admit guilty as such that I took many a dates there Yeah, because for seemingly under $60, first of all, Beast 120 is 120 minutes, two hours of happy hour. Happens, used to be Tuesday to Thursday, but I think you guys extended it to Mondays now? Uh, no, we're closed on Mondays and Tuesdays, but when we decided to do that, we extended it from Wednesday to Saturday. So, it's all the, wow. all the dinner services that were open, <clears throat> we offer So, let's, let's just clarify. You're open Wednesday to Sunday every week? Wednesday to Sunday for brunch from 10 to 3, and then Wednesday to Saturday for dinner from 5 till 10. So, you're even open now on Wednesday and Thursday for brunch? Yep. Scott, yep, which that, a lot of people don't on. know. but That's incredible. Again, it's that organic kind of way of thinking when we open up the restaurant, never pigeonholing ourselves into one specific thing. So, as we've grown as a restaurant, we've seen what the demand is for the neighborhood and, and we, we enjoy the feedback from our patrons um, to allow us to kind of offer what people want. And as Saturday, the, the popularity of brunch on Saturday and Sunday grew enormously, it made sense for us to open up Wednesday, Thursday, Friday as well to give people who didn't necessarily want to come on the weekends and stand in line, an opportunity to walk right in, <clears throat> get a table, no problem, and then still enjoy the same same food. And it again, with Beast 120, that's exactly why we did it. We don't make any money off of it, um, but that isn't always necessarily the most important thing to us. It's, it's having people come into the restaurant, having that accessibility factor so that people come in and, and without fail, always try other things on the menu besides that. And then return... For a larger dining experience, you know, Beast 120 for me is the ability to spend $5 on a wine or a beer or um, a small snack plate, which is shareable. I mean, between even if you order basically all the menu items and a drink per person, you're still only looking at like $45, $50 between two people most of the times. A, that's the best date. So, I'm telling you right now, listeners, listen, <laughs> Beast 120 on a Wednesday after work date, you have some of the best food. You can fill up on it too. Uh, also, buck-a-shuck oysters. You mean, like, I mean, I, I get the idea of not making money because it's so expensive to put out prepare and the overhead of a restaurant but it you're so right having people just generally in and around your restaurant is so difficult and you're simplifying it by saying hey we're willing to take a, a hit here but how many more times are you going to be talking about this to your friends or coming back for dinner or even just returning and then staying for dinner? I, I can't tell you how many times the, you realize it's seven o'clock and you're like, well, I guess it's time for gnocchi poutine. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like you're, you want people there and talking about it. I, I commend you I, as a big fan of your restaurant. When you opened up brunch, even just Friday, you weren't even doing it Wednesday and Thursday. The fact that it's Correct. overflowed to Wednesday and Thursday, I'm just like, I hate Toronto brunch for the fact, you know, the, the Sloan song, it's not the band I hate, it's their fans. <laughs> you know, like I don't want to stand in line on a Saturday or a Sunday. I don't want precious hours of my weekend wasted in line. The fact that I could come on Friday, quiet, one of the best patios, mostly because it's in such a quiet little neighborhood. But you're right, King West is brunch central. What is it like seeing a lineup down the street and it seemingly gets longer every year. How does it make you feel? It's great. Uh, we love it. I mean, as much as 
I don't love the fact that people have to wait in line because I want to feed everybody in a timely fashion. I want everybody to come in and enjoy their experience. We are so fortunate to have the support from Torontonians and, and people around to come in and, like you said, line up for brunch and you know it's a great feeling at times overwhelming but for a little 34 seat restaurant to do 170 people on a sunday for brunch is pretty uh it's pretty amazing and and that's kind of our gift back to the city you know we necessarily don't need to be open for brunch during the week but it was kind of our thank you to to our loyal clientele who still want to enjoy it and like you said don't necessarily want to uh wait in line and you know in all honesty a lot of people that come on the weekends probably don't live in this area um but they've heard about it and it's become a destination brunch spot on the weekends and so kind of giving back to the neighborhood to show our thanks for all the support over the last seven years our services that we add on like wednesday thursday brunch and and the beast 120 during the week and on saturdays so between all these various menus that you're preparing weekly sometimes daily what is your favorite food to prepare and cook what gives you the most pride when it hits the table is it a more common day of service or you know you now offer whole animal dining and catering you know what what gives you the most fulfillment? I think just cooking for people. That's I really enjoy cooking for people, watching the satisfaction on their face uh, when they eat uh, something that, again, touches on those either nostalgic or just something that they think, oh, wow, this is delicious. Like th- that gratification for me is, is, is all I need. And that, that feeds my passion to continue and do all these different services and stuff like that. I wouldn't say there's like a specific dish or a specific style of food that I prefer over another. I mean, I obviously brunch has been great. I do gravitate more to, uh, the dinner menu, which changes quite often. Small plates. I like to pack as much flavor as I can into three or four bites. Um, but really it's just seeing the satisfaction on somebody's face when they've eaten something that they really enjoy. What are the key factors of menu construction or even your specials? Like what, what items usually will stay on your menus the longest is about you know, sales and season, right? Black and white. That simple. Uh, unfortunately. And fortunately, I don't think I'm probably the most driven businessman to, <laughs> per se. That's okay. um, I, I love my restaurant and right. I love inviting people into my restaurant and feeding them. Um, so I don't necessarily or very rarely ever look at something as the bottom line. Uh, it's more so, how can I make this this food as as delicious as I possibly can so that people enjoy it? So when I'm creating a dish and constructing a menu, I'm looking for uh, a good variety of stuff. Uh, and then really i'm I'm looking at layering textures and flavors and acid and uh, so that you have because at the end of the day, when you only have three or four bites to impress somebody, uh, there's there is quite a bit of a challenge of of making sure that you hit all those notes uh in that short amount of time so uh it's just yeah it's more so just like layering those textures and so you get crunchy and salty and and sweet and and a good hit of acid to cut through the fat and and that kind of stuff that's you, how i look at it you keep talking about acid i i, I know that you're a big thomas keller fan you know sure. and he's the king of vinegar as far as i'm concerned <laughs> yeah. you know like he makes you realize that seasoning is more than just 
salt and pepper or just more than just citrus you know it's it's so much more depth of flavor i can only imagine your kitchen having so many different seasoning tools and you know weapons of choice like i've been to your restaurant many times it's a small little home that doesn't fit a lot i can't imagine your 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 space has so much room you know what are the constants in your kitchen that never changes uh, as far as ingredients go, uh, we always have fish sauce on hand. Right. Multiple vinegars of, of different acidity levels and flavor profiles. Different kind of Asian ingredients to, to add to that. Yeah, anything that we can like really like dried mushrooms, stuff like that. Anything that can you can kind of have that undertone of, of, of umami that, that really builds up the flavor profile. And then as I keep sane acid which is like become a, a pretty big chef term now it's really just about balance of of sure. a dish and giving that acid punch whether it's something as blatant as adding uh, a vinegar to it or an undertone of a squeeze of lemon or a grating of nutmeg or you want umami acid and salt fish sauce to me is like that super magical ingredient that doesn't necessarily need to always just be an Asian cooking. You can add it to any type of cuisine and it really adds that, that really nice undertone that people might not directly get it. It's you're not, you're not actually serving them a bowl of fish sauce like you would in Vietnamese cultures and Thai cultures and stuff like that. It's just that added kind of extra thing to a dish to really brighten it up. What are some of your favorite destination spots in Toronto that, you know, we can talk specifically as simple as they use depth of flavor really well, or maybe it's just like a, an easy, fun spot you enjoy. What, what are some of the ones that come to mind these days in Toronto for you? It's not just because I'm good friends with them, but I think it's, in my opinion, I think Edulis is by far the best restaurant in Toronto. Um, everything they do from from service and making you feel welcome to the best uh, constructed tasting menus that I've seen anywhere in North America. Uh, they really pay attention to how their diners are going to feel from beginning, middle to end of that experience. Um, and so well thought out flavors and, and plateware and, and everything, everything to do with the whole entire experience from the time you get there till the time you leave is so meticulous and, and well thought out. They just, they do an amazing job. And I, I, without a doubt, believe that if there, we did have any kind of national rating like San Pellegrino or, um, Michelin or anything like that, they would definitely be on all those, uh, all those top lists. Not that 100%. they're not on a lot of top Canadian lists anyways, but, um, internationally, they should definitely be recognized for what they do because I have to say as much as I travel and, and eat out, uh, some of the best meals that I've ever had in my life have been at Edulis and I get the same response from a lot of the chefs that I bring in to do collaboration dinners. That's definitely if it falls on the days that they're open and I have the opportunity to take them there. I've, I have not had one single chef that I've brought to Edulis not say that it's one of the best meals that they've ever had in their life. And it's very approachable. This is what people don't understand. Yes, it's kind of hidden away and it's low volume and it's you got to call in advance to get a reservation. But they're, once you're there, their menu is completely simple. Uh, you know, even for a tasting menu, you're not, you're not breaking the bank here, folks. Like people think that if I'm going to an, a restaurant like this that could have a rating of a Michelin star, I'm spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Could couldn't be closer to the truth. Um, I took my partner, Trish, who you just met uh, for her 30th, and maybe it was the 85 
dollar per person tasting menu and by far the best food I've had in Toronto in a long time. And and I see a lot of similarities, obviously, you know, not to compare Beast and Angelus, but this idea of how to use the ingredients and, and where to take it as far as what your expectations are, you know, with price or kind of the kind of business that they're supporting. Um, what you're supporting is different and it's exciting and it's very smart that everybody is using local ingredients the most that's what makes makes edulous good that's what makes beast good with your menu changing weekly and sometimes daily you use so much that's local to you whether it's the markets you have a rooftop garden uh you have local foragers that i'm sure are stopping on at your door sending Absolutely. you so what, what's your connection like i mean I, i'm assuming uh your rooftop may only be used for herbs due to space or are you yielding like good crop up there no we don't get unfortunately because of of the location of the rooftop it gets a lot of sun like almost too mm-hmm. much so it does become a challenge but we grow a good amount of peppers, a lot of different varieties of chili peppers. Wow. Um, and then, yeah, mainly herbs and edible flowers and stuff like that. Um, nothing too substantial that we're able to actually supply the restaurant with on a consistent basis. But that's why we have the suppliers that we deal with. And it all stems back from the Jamie Kennedy days, forming and, and making those relationships that we've that I've continued to to nurture as as Beast grows and dealing with those suppliers who now after seven years of beast plus three years at, uh, with the Jamie Kennedy organization, um, you really get a, a good sense of that communication between each other and making sure that everybody's happy and, um, they're growing for us exactly what we want. And we're doing our best to make sure that, uh, we're showcasing their ingredients. You want to give a shout out to some of your local suppliers or farmers or even farmers markets or foragers that you use frequently? Yeah, I mean, as a consumer uh, for home cooking and and as a restaurant, I I still believe Cumbres does the best meat. Uh, it's a little bit more expensive maybe than some other butcher shops, but I think that their quality is is still at the tops in the city. We have a great forager that a lot of us kind of share that uh, named Deirdre, who now I think is just taking a full time job with. Um, one of the wineries in Niagara, um, but still does a lot of foraging, comes through the city, stops at Edulis, comes to us. If there's anything left over after Mike takes all the good stuff, <laughs> then, <laughs> then we'll go ahead and snap it up. But, uh, that's funny. Yeah. She's great. Uh, her company used to be called vibrant matter. I'm not sure what the name is now that she's switched over to uh, doing stuff for the winery, you know, hundred kilometer since day one has just done an amazing job of, of making local food accessible to restaurants. Cause at the end of the day, as glamorous as we would like to depict it as, as a chef, you don't, a lot of times don't have time to leave your restaurant, to go to farmer's markets and walk through and, and shop for yourself. So to have a company like that, who takes all the guesswork out of it, they give you a list every week that you can now go on digitally. And it has a list of the farmers. So you know exactly where it's coming from. You know, with their philosophies that everything checks out with the farm, but it's completely transparent you can go on to the websites of the farms if they have one and and see what their what their philosophies and growing practices are and then for us it's as easy as a click of the button and it comes the next day like it's it doesn't get any better than that and at the end of the day if you're looking for a smart business model as a local food provider you have to be as accessible as possible to chefs and and make it easy for them and and we've always had um, a great relationship with them cheese boutique again as 
crazy as that quote unquote little cheese shop is. I mean, they pack it in there and, and, and it's, you know, Afram and his family who have built this business from the ground up and they still treat it like a local business, uh, like a small locally owned business. That's still their philosophies and their mentalities. And if, if I need something or I've traveled and I saw something that I really enjoyed somewhere, I can still pick up the phone and give Afram a call and he'll have it to me as soon as he possibly can so it's it's really nice to have those relationships because at the end of the day it's fun for us as chefs to showcase and play with these ingredients um, but it's even more satisfying for us to offer it to the people who come into the restaurant and it's so community driven it's unbelievable Absolutely. how Toronto is a big, small town of suppliers. Like, really, like, Cheese Boutique is not only known as a supplier, but it's probably primarily known as a walk-in cheese shop for people just to get their home fixed, to, to take stuff home. It's it's unbelievable how they're also supplying. Like, even if you go to, like, any of the big media parties and stuff that I've been able to be fortunate to frequent, they're always the go-to cheese presenters. Sure. And, you know, it's amazing the ability to build a reputation in Toronto because you have done that. You know, Beast is, to me, the only restaurant that's interesting. It's cool, for a lack of a better term, to go eat nose to tail. You know, Black Hoof is a little bit more of a fine dining approach to it and it's not comfortable and if you're not knowing what you're getting into, it can be, you know, a little bit of a shock value. Um, I remember this was probably when you were still active, but Noah Goldberg, who's now at Peter Pan, had the feasting room, a pop-up in uh, the Orbit Room. Yep. Again, it being a pop-up and it being a little bit more on the fancier side for a lack of a better term but only because how it was presented it was a little bit you know you get a knickknack you have, you have you see the animal you're working with all this with you nose to tail is not just about one animal especially you know at any dining experience what whatever menu you're eating i'm going to try multiple different animals but the idea is you're trying things of that animal that you may or may not be consuming at any time in your dining experience unless you're going to go out to go out to a restaurant like the beast which seasons are the biggest wild cards in toronto for suppliers or gardens when you're working so closely with your menu on a weekly to daily basis uh, are you asking things of suppliers that most restaurants maybe aren't asking um no we kind of let the suppliers dictate and that's why we have the ever-changing menu at night we've trained ourselves um as cooks to be flexible and um, being a smaller restaurant we don't have to say this is the menu for the next four months even larger seasonal restaurants kind of have to adhere to that like okay clientele this is what it's going to be for the next you know until summer comes or whatever for us it's kind of like every week it's like what do you have cool coming in oh my god that sounds awesome yes finally fava beans are out or yes finally sunchokes are ready and it just allows us to be a little bit more versatile with what we have coming in and not really stick to you know we have to serve this because it's it's this right now whatever is available we we try to showcase this wild card mentality though like you're sometimes getting a menu and you're like playing an episode of chopped or iron chef you know you're like this is great and new and exciting but i also have to like come up with a dish on the spot essentially that's almost the best way to describe how we develop the menu at dinner at beast it's 
minus the the black box kind of uh, <laughs> approach to it. It's kind of you know starting at the beginning of the week, seeing what we're getting in, or the end of the of the previous week, uh, seeing what we're getting in, and some of those things we might only be able to get in a small amount. So it might if we have a busy Wednesday or Thursday, it's all gone, and then. We plan from there what we're going to serve over the weekend. So, is it a blessing or a curse? Are you excited sometimes, or you're like, oh shit? How many more exciting moments are there than oh shit <laughs> moments? You know, I think for the most part it, it's exciting, especially for young cooks who come through our kitchen. It's such a great way to to see and to, and to learn what's out there and how to prepare it. And um, at the beginning. For sure, there was a lot of oh shit moments because it was just myself and one other cook and there wasn't a lot of room to play around and, and kind of learn how to cook these ingredients with enough time to, to be excited with what we had coming on the menu. A lot of times it was like, okay, so the lamb neck is coming in at like two o'clock, service starts at five. So how are we going to cook that, get it ready and figure out what it's going to go with before people start showing up. And not even just like figuring out how it's going to taste, but you got to break that down. You got to braise it. You got to do whatever you got to do to cook it in in enough time. So then when the first person who of course is going to order that menu item, because you put it on there, you know, like the, the amount of time it takes to, come up with an, uh, a recipe, understand how it's going to taste good, be able to serve it all in the same night. Seems crazy in a lot. Like, I don't think any, I don't think a lot of restaurants are doing what you're doing. Do you get that vibe? Because, you know, maybe we're all using the same suppliers and forgers, but in the end of the day, you're excited about different things. For us, at the end of the day, it's it's still offering that, that guest experience. As much as we would love people to know what we go through on a day-to-day basis at the end of the day it's a, it's a customer sitting down and being comfortable in their surroundings and and eating delicious food so whatever we need to do to make sure that that happens is what we do um it is a little bit more frantic at times than than most restaurant kitchens but for different reasons you just figure out what works in that small space and kind of let it let it go that way especially with our whole animal dinners i mean that's taking even yet another menu where a customer can call with a week's notice, request the animal, and then we create a six-course tasting menu using a different part of the animal for each course. So that's another menu that we kind of add to. And, you know, we don't, some weeks we might not have any, and then the next week we might have three or four. It's, it's just one more thing for us to kind of utilize. And then that allows us to kind of refine the cooking that we do, bring in some higher end ingredients that we might not necessarily put on the regular menus and, and, and really go all out. It gives us a chance that we, we don't do a tasting menu in, in any other sense of the, of the word. So, uh, for us to be able to do those dinners in, cohesiveness or with the rest of our daily services uh, makes it fun for the kitchen hectic at times but definitely fun for the kitchen because um, it's just it's it's adding that extra element to to what we enjoy doing when did you start doing whole animal dinners and catering uh probably the second year so we've been doing it for about six years oh, wow now. so how often do you think you'll get an order for a whole animal i would say on average in the course of a month uh we'll probably we do eight to ten. Wow. Uh, and, and like I said, some weeks we'll go without doing any. And then the next right. week, and there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just... Uh, Still, that's pretty impressive. That's how it lines up. And, and we'll only take one a night because it's too difficult right, for us right. to, do, to do more than one a night. But it all allows us. And we, we personalize each one to the customer. So we've never repeated a menu before. We actually really? have... 
groups that kind of use it as their like dining club and will come in in the course of the year and do four or five throughout the year, always picking different animals and always getting completely different experiences with, with what they select. What are your limitations animal wise? Uh, anything that we can source first from Ontario and this is our philosophy with everything, but first we look at our farmers and suppliers in Ontario. If we can't get it in Ontario, uh, what other provinces can we get it from in Canada? That's as far as we go with the animals. So to be able to serve it in Ontario, they have to be farm raised. So unfortunately we can't, we've had a lot of requests for uh, moose and um, other, other kind of wild bear. animals like that bear. I think somebody even requested swan once, which I don't even think is, <laughs> is legal to no. serve at all. But yeah, I'm sure you get horse. I'm sure you get, uh, asked to do horse yeah we could we can do horse uh we've done some seal dinners interesting uh nothing like much more out there than that that's Uh, pretty a seal's out i mean horse not so much because we're we're pretty accustomed to it now even though there's always going to be an issue but seal i had no idea yeah we we have a few suppliers who are able to get it from northern quebec and newfoundland um so we have been able to do some seal dinners and then i would say the most popular animal to date has been wild boar which we have uh a farmer in seabringville which is just outside of stratford who raise wild boar and different heritage breed pigs and stuff like that so awesome uh, that's definitely been our most popular and then everything else kind of falls second and third and now since opening the restaurant you've discussed openly your interest in getting into hunting and foraging has that advanced at all have you been hunting have you served anything at your restaurant that you've hunted no unfortunately <laughs> with the demands of the restaurant i haven't had enough time to really just to get the certification and go out and and do hunting it's still definitely something that i'm interested in doing and and we'll hopefully have the opportunity one day to do so but we're fortunate enough that that we do have have amazing suppliers who are able to source those ingredients for us so they're they're still pretty pretty accessible but for sure i would love to one day have the opportunity to to not only hunt but hunt and and butcher and serve something that i've caught i want to talk a little bit more personally as we wrap things up i want to know a little bit more about your favorite food trends as of late whether as a diner or as a chef and i also want to touch on some of your favorite kind of ethnic locales in toronto or or abroad uh, that we can touch on so let's let's first maybe if they're one and the same but uh some of the more popular food trends that you've seen or that you're interested in or maybe you guys put out there as well you're not gonna like this answer but i i i kind of try to stay away from food trends um i mean i guess the first thing that would come to my mind is is obviously enjoying going to restaurants who are supporting local uh, good trend good trend and, and yeah and i think i think the toronto food scene has now gotten to the point where it's not a trend any longer it's just become a way hey totally and uh that that's been the goal since day one is to for it to become your natural way of thinking and not being a, a whether it's a, a gimmicky gimmicky promotion or for whatever reason it, it's and i and you know what I, I do want to point out the fact that the reason why supporting local has become so popular is not only the accessibility with numerous farmers markets throughout the city on any given day of the week, but the amazing artisans that we have in Ontario that that grow beautiful, beautiful stuff or produce beautiful, beautiful stuff. Chefs wouldn't be using these ingredients just to say that they're local if they were subpar to things that we can get 
anywhere else. And I see it firsthand because as a, as a chef who's been doing this for a long time, especially with the local foods, you kind of get so accustomed to it that you take it for granted. And so when I do bring in chefs from other parts of the U S and Canada and see their reaction to the ingredients that we have to work with here, that's when I know, Oh wait, yeah, we actually do have beautiful, beautiful stuff that we're able to to use, and so we're very fortunate in that sense to be able to work with that kind of stuff here. And you're bringing Richie in on yep. October 31st, Halloween, California. He's from San Fran, yeah, from San Fran. Yeah. Um, so t- tell us a little bit about that event, and then after the event, are you taking Richie for oxtail at uh, Pat's? <laughs> are you guys going to like what's the deal? Where do you where do you take your friends? I want to know about your hotspots. Yeah, so Richie's been a good friend of mine for a while. We uh, um, originally met through social media, but then had the opportunity to cook uh, about three or four years ago in Austin, Texas at a thing called Indie Chefs Week, where I've met a lot of these chefs that I've been bringing up from the States. And uh, he's super talented, makes delicious, delicious. So he started by making ramen out of a out of a certified space and selling it at the the ferry terminal market in San Francisco eventually opened up his own brick brick and mortar called Hopper Ramen and uh through unfortunate incidences uh walk had to walk away from that which was kind of talked about on the when he hosted Anthony Bourdain and stuff like that and he doesn't necessarily have the opportunity as much to to do ramen anymore so it's it's such a treat for us to be able to bring him up here and and share what what he does so well with with our clientele and anybody who wants to all of our events that we do are open to the public and uh, especially for our pop-ups we do take reservations but we we accept walk-ins as well and um yeah it's, we did it last year for the first time this will be our second year in a row doing it with him on halloween night uh from five to ten and it's just like everything else we do, it's super chill, laid back. Uh, he'll probably do two different styles of ramen, uh, and then we'll do some other kind of uh, Japanese um, starters and stuff like that. And we'll have a, a composed menu of of some ramen and, and bites and stuff like that that you can come in and sit down. And we try to keep everything accessibly priced. And um, you know, for us, it's 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 sharing. These amazing, these things that we've had the opportunity to see as I've traveled and cooked all over and sharing that with, with Torontonians and also inviting those people to come so that we can show them Toronto and how special Toronto is. So, so where are you taking Richie after? Well, he, where are you going to go? He's always a challenge because he, <laughs> he's now, I think this is between events that we've done at Beast and, and other uh, parts of Toronto. This will be about his fourth or fifth time in Toronto. So it's, the good part is, is we have such a, a growing, uh, rapidly growing food scene that there's always new places when he comes here, but it's me remembering the places that I have taken to him before and, and where to take him to now. Uh, you know, the funny part is, and, and I just decided this the other day, I, I get so caught up on taking him to the new exciting places that I've, he hasn't really seen the undertone of Toronto dining. So I think for sure one night we're going to go to Barbarians because I, I think that uh, it's such a fun, old kind of throwback experience and they make amazing steaks and and everything everything there is so so good um, it's the best steakhouse onion ring in the city by far best by far. steakhouse onion ring yeah. in the city i agree uh so we'll definitely take him to barbarians um i don't think he's been to dandelion yet so if we can get in there 
Um, it's also a lot of times it has to do with what days of the week that they're here. So if he's getting in on a Saturday and leaving on a Thursday, but we're also cooking for at least one of those days, then it's, uh, you know, which, which days can we go to? I mean, bar Raval is always a good staple because they're pretty much open 24 seven. So killing it. They're just killing even, it. even when we get done with doing the dinner, um, we still have the opportunity to go there. He hasn't been to pinkies yet. So for sure, I'm going to take him to pinkies cafe, um, those guys from Hanmoto and Pinkies do such an amazing job and it's right up his alley, like just well executed Vietnamese food in such a cool setting. Um, and we'll fill in the other blanks again. Like I do have my staples in Toronto, like mother's dumplings and, uh, places that I like to go eat on my days off and. Yeah, it's just it's it's you know it's it's showing them a ver- the the variety that is Toronto. I mean, you can have so many different experiences here between Chinatown and if actually what I've never done with him, which if we have time, we'll do is rent a car and drive up to Markham and hit up the the real you know Chinese food in in Toronto or Markham for that. Totally. One of Toronto's three or four Chinatowns. Yeah, yeah. I think places like Din Tai Fung and and going to, uh, there's a there's a place. Fishman's Lobster Clubhouse. Yeah, there's a place also that um, Nick Liu, who's such a great guide for for that growing up in Markham, there's a place called Saigon Star that does like the best curry crab. And it's literally a whole crab just smothered in this like yellow Vietnamese curry. And then they give you these buttery buttery rotis on the side like perfectly layered flaky rotis to dip into the curry sauce it's like one of those mind-blowing experiences markham's so full of gems oh yeah yeah so if we can get out there that's definitely something special that i want to show them and then just kind of bomb around the city and that is definitely some of the best answers i mean just knowing that you and i share some of the same ones tells me a lot about my dining experiences (laughs) so i want to end off with a quick kind of rapid fire game really simple it's just basically we i want to learn about your favorites but not just about like dishes but kind of the ingredients themselves so i will ask you your favorite preparation whether it's eating or cooking it yourself of a certain ingredient or both um so it could be either way you know you tell us what your favorite preparation of that food is so i'll start with something seemingly easy and i'll just rapid fire these for you keep it as brief as you'd like so something seemingly easy an egg Soft poached, soft poached and properly seasoned. That's my favorite way to properly, eat an egg. Properly, see, that's the key right there is seasoning. Pork belly. I like to do pork belly braised. Um, I'm still a big advocate on on uh, the old school cooking techniques. Um, we do have an immersion circulated at the restaurant, but I very rarely rely on that to actually cook an ingredient all the way through. Um, so for me, it's pork belly. It, it's, it's sticking it in a water brine for three or four days, taking it out of the brine, rinsing it, uh, getting a good smoke on it with uh, the local apple wood chips that we fill our smoker with. And then usually putting some kind of seasoning on it before we braise it, whether it's an Asian glaze or something like that. And, and really just touching on what, a what pork belly is unctuous and sticky, and then kind of adding to that and, and even, you know, making it more unctuous and more sticky and delicious. Curry. Ooh, that's a, that's a good one. That's a tough one. It's such a versatile hodgepodge of stuff, but 
being half Indian, I always gravitate towards Indian style curries for sure. But I do love my, uh, you know, my Thai curries and stuff like that. And we have some amazing Thai restaurants in Toronto that, that we can enjoy those at. Who's Indian in your family? My mom's side of the family. Does she still cook? She does. Um, but not as much Indian food. Um, at the end of the day, Indian food's not easy to cook at home. Oh, it's It's not. So many different spices and ingredients and stuff like that. Um, but she's, she's an excellent cook. That's definitely where I got my passion for cooking from. Beef cheek. Beef cheek, always braised. Um, and then after it's braised, then I decide how I'm going to prepare it, whether it's uh, shredding it and making a gravy out of it for poutine, turning it into chili for uh, beef cheek nachos, which is something that we've done a lot of times uh, for events and such. Um, and then one of my favorite ways to do it uh, that we do in the summertime is after it's braised, slicing it after it cools down. And then when we pick it up, we we grill it. So all that fat gets all crispy and, and moist. Caramelized. And, yeah, and it's a little bit different preparation the first time i ever had it was in spain uh where it was actually beef cheek that was thinly sliced and then grilled uh so it's a it's a nice way to enjoy it that's a little bit different from that very uh rich kind of preparation kimchi you know again i i i am quite purist and traditional in my philosophies the version of kimchi that we do it at the restaurant, I wouldn't say that it's traditional in the sense that none of us are Korean. <laughs> um, so we, did, we didn't grow up with it. Um, but as cooks, we kind of taste something that we enjoy and we try to emulate it. And so the recipe that we've come up with is a pretty traditional way of doing it with cabbage and carrot and scallion and ginger and stuff like that. Um, with that being said, I, I love to experiment with different things and we've tried different kimchi at times, especially when you get seasonal ingredients that are that are grown in Ontario, like wild leeks and stuff like that. It's always fun to see how that turns out in, wow. that, in that preparation. Wild leek kimchi. We've done wild leek kimchi. We've done an apple kimchi before when it's apple season. So cool. Uh, you know, anything that kind of like, again, can balance those yeah. kind of flavors out and stuff as you got the spicy and the salty and, and all that stuff. And when you add sweet to that with apple, other types of fruits and stuff like that, it's Brilliant. pretty awesome. Chili peppers. Chili peppers, I find, are a perfect way to um, balance a dish out without blowing somebody's head off. I mean, you do have your whatever you call the chili heads or pepper heads or whatever who love the hottest, hottest thing. For us, it's more so, and for myself personally, it's it's having that balance of flavor uh, that, you, that you do actually taste the flavor from the chili, uh, whether it does add heat to the dish or not, to me isn't as important as being able to, to, to get that flavor. So when we do use chilies in the restaurant, uh, we use some for the purpose of flavor and heat. Uh, we also use some other dried chilies just to add that kind of earthy undertone into a dish. And last but not least, bourbon. Besides what I like to drink on a daily basis, <laughs> um, it does make its way into food sometimes. Sometimes. Uh, Tanya, who is my uh, girlfriend and our pastry chef at the restaurant, loves to use bourbon in her donut glazes that Ooh. we have available on the weekends, which um, is is a very fun flavor and something that you should definitely eat while you're having brunch. And then again, like it, it, it adds good. I, I find it much more successful in pastry, but I will, if, if there is a sauce or something like that, that I think needs that kind of like uh, sweet kind of um, 
uh, bourbony kind of corn flavor. It, uh, I'll definitely add it to a sauce or something like that. But for the most part, most part, a uh, good bourbon should just go in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank my guest, Scott Vivian. It's been such an honor having you for such a long time. Uh, can we plug your website, your socials, whatever you want to put out there? Yeah, sure. Um, like I said before, we do the, the Beast 120 Wednesday through Saturday from five to seven. Um, I still think it's the best deal in town and something that I would love it. We don't have lineups for it. I would love it if people lined up for it, but I do enjoy the fact that the people that do know about it get to get to appreciate it and enjoy it. Um, the only reason why I'd like to see it expand more from a from a business standpoint is because the more people that come in for it, the more fun stuff we can right that we can put on the menu totally. Um, but I secretly don't want any. No, I know. And that's the thing too, right? <laughs> like you kind of want it to be, let, we'll, we'll meet halfway, like just so that it's busy enough. Yeah, like, right. We don't have to have lineups at the door, but um, it would, it would be nice to see people taking advantage of that because that's, that's what it's there for. Restaurant is, is the beast restaurant.com. Uh, it's an accessible website that even myself, who's fairly technologically illiterate, um, can go on. And so I, I update the menu every week. Um, and any, any time we're having events and stuff like that, I, there's a way for me to, to advertise that. So to get all the information that you want to know about the restaurant of what we have coming up and stuff like that is it's all accessible on the website, social media. We have a couple different accounts, my own personal one, uh, which is at Scott Vivian on Instagram and the beast restaurant on, sorry, just at beast restaurant on Twitter. Uh, and then we have a Facebook page that's uh, facebook.com backslash beast. And then uh, we have one for the restaurant, which is at beast Toronto on Instagram. And that's also linked into our, to our beast restaurant, Twitter account. And, uh, and then Tanya who does all of our pastries and our donuts on the weekends has at beast underscore nuts. So you get to see all the donuts that she's making and she'll even, as she's coming up with new flavors and stuff like that, she does a really good job. Um, uh, highlighting that and kind of showing everybody the 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 journey of uh, of a donut as she starts to conceptualize the the flavors and 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 then tests them out and eventually comes up with the product that we serve on the weekends and you can catch Scott doing a very special Halloween pop-up ramen edition with Richie Nakano. Yeah. Got it right this time. <laughs> <Got it. laughs> uh, that's Tuesday, October 31st at Beast 96 Tecumseh. Uh, you know, as the host of the show and someone who, who likes to think he knows a little bit about Toronto dining, yes, please come to Beast. New, new people are always welcome. But, you know, you can ask us first and we'll definitely accommodate <laughs> you as, as, you know, people have been there since the beginning. And I, I just want to say thank you to Scott for doing so many things for the Toronto dining experience. I don't think you understand. I know you do understand, but I don't realize, don't think you realize the impact that you've made on our city. It's humongous. I want to tell you that as somebody who's been watching you grow, watching the type of dining experiences that you provide, I want to say thank you and thank you so much for coming on to Speaking Duck. That's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And catch all episodes of Speaking Duck at Never Sleeps Network. Dot com. Thank you. We'll see you next time on Speaking Duck. Never Sleeps Network.
This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Thank you.